0: Uh, Ezekiel chapter 15, and if you've been with us, and thank thank you those of you that have um, not only been here uh, over the past couple of months going through this amazing book, we go to a, a church that preaches through uh, the scriptures, especially... On Wednesday nights, we started some, you know, 10, 12 years ago, however long ago it was, when we started way back on Genesis. And and now we're in the book of Ezekiel and been going through the Psalms and the Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon and Isaiah and Jeremiah. And now to one of the, uh, the second to the last of the major prophets, Ezekiel. And, and this is truly one of those sections in the Bible that, uh, eventually, you will get to if you've ever read through the Bible, uh, if you've ever done a whether it's a a, a year long reading of the Bible or or heard someone preach through the entire Bible. This is one of those sections that uh, can cause um, great discomfort. It's one of those sections in the Bible. Uh, That has to be read in context. Because the great thing is, is we're reading 15, 16, and 17 tonight of the book of Ezekiel. They all have to be read together. They're they're important. They must be in context. You can't just take one verse out of 16 and say, oh, this is blasphemous. And then, you know, uh, shred your Bible or something like that. It's one of those things that you have to understand in terms of the context. In fact, whole denominations do not even read chapter 16 or chapter 23 in the book of Ezekiel, especially out loud. If you go to a Jewish synagogue, it is forbidden to be read out loud chapter 16 of Ezekiel and chapter 23 of Ezekiel, and you'll understand the reason why as we walk through, they don't remove them they just not allowed to be read publicly ezekiel 15 sets the context it says there in chapter one we're going to read the whole chapter it's only eight verses and then we'll we'll pray and then we'll uh get into this then this message came to me from the lord son of man how does a grapevine compare to a tree Is a vine's wood as useful as the wood of a tree? Can its wood be used for making things, like pegs to hang up pots and pans? No, it can only be used for fuel. And even as fuel, it burns too quickly. Vines are useless both before and after being put into the fire. And this is what the sovereign Lord says. The people of Jerusalem are like Grapevines growing among the trees of the forest, since they are useless. I have thrown them in the fire to be burned, and I will see to it that if they escape from one fire, they will fall into another. And when I turn against them, you will know that I am the Lord, and I will make the land desolate because my people have been unfaithful to me. I, the Sovereign Lord, have spoken. And so, Father, this evening as we approach this section of your word, this uh, truly tough section, as all the prophets can be, uh, we ask for wisdom because we didn't grow up in a a Jewish culture, at least not, not anyone that I know of. We, we didn't come from a, a Jewish background. We weren't living at the time uh, that this was written. We don't understand all the, the cultural nuances that are going on. But I do know that I sin. I do know uh, that we as uh, human beings sin and we gloss over our sin. We always excuse our sin away. Rather than being face-to-face with the stark nakedness of what sin looks like. When we have to come face-to-face with with what sin does uh, to a person's life when we are apart from uh, you. Uh, The the sin in our lives that we we want to excuse away uh, rather than facing and admitting uh, That I am a a sinner in need of a savior. And all of us have to abide in that vine. All of us have to abide in you. To understand that you truly give us life. And life abundantly. And everything else is just death. Everything apart from you is destruction, decay, death so, Lord, help us to get a, a new appreciation maybe for your word tonight, to understand it a little bit better. Thank you so much for uh, your truth and uh, that we get exposed to tonight. Lord, I thank you for these that were brave enough to come, and for those that are brave enough to watch. Lord, I, I ask you bless their time tonight, that they would truly come to a realization, just as we had the privilege of doing uh, sitting silently before you with just ourselves and you and, and realizing that there's so many things in our lives that that hinder our walk with you. Lord, help us to desire, desire to have holy lives that, that follow you hard. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And amen. I, I don't know if you, you know, as we were reading these eight small verses yeah, in chapter 15, there, there's a lot of uh, similarities between John 15, and it's amazing how these two chapters, both chapter 15 of two different books, one from the Old Testament, one from the New Testament, they line up so well. In fact, if you look at John 15, the whole chapter is all about abiding in Christ, and and you are the branches, and I am the vine, and when we're separated from the vine, Jesus Christ, we are dead, and we're only good for being in a fire. And the same thing as we see looking at this chapter as well. There's this wild vine, not the vines that you see on the grapevine that are, uh, you know, filled with nice fruit with with grape grapes and all the different beautiful, you know, different types of grapes. The green and the the red and the champagne and all the different kinds that you can get. Uh, But these are vines that are just growing wild in the forest. Uh, These are vines that either strangle the trees or or are just there that clog up uh, the forest. And the only thing that they're good for is to be put into a fire. You can't make anything out of them. You can't make a plank out of them. You can't make a house out of them. You can't, as it says here, make plants pots or pans or pegs even, even just a small dowel. You can't make a good dowel out of a vine. Why? There's no structure to it, right? It's just fibrous. And so all it's good for is to be put into uh, the fire. Even that, as verse 5 says, vines are useless both before and after being put into the Fire. Now, who is this vine being compared to? <clears throat> Israel. What is God saying about Israel? You're useless. If you are apart from God, you are useless. If you are not abiding in God, you are useless. Wow, that's harsh language. In fact, these are the people of God. These are the chosen people of God. And what is God saying about them? Yeah. They're useless, just ready to be thrown in the Fire. In fact, in verse 6 there, and this is what the sovereign Lord says the people of Jerusalem are like grapevines growing among the trees of the forest. These aren't on hillsides that are going to be used for uh, juice or wine or something that's useful. Uh, these are just wild vines. Since they are useless, I have thrown them on the fire to be burned. Who are the ones that are compared to the vine? Jerusalem itself. This once great city that was supposed to be the light of the world. Uh, The ones that were supposed to be a blessing to the nations. And what is God saying about them? Because you're no longer following after me. You are useless. In fact, every single time, just like we saw in chapter 14 last week, this title for God, the Sovereign Lord, is repeated. God, in his full authority, is bringing judgment up against the people of Jerusalem. And I will see to it that if they escape from one fire, they will fall into another. When I turn against them, you will know that I am the... Lord. And what's the purpose of all judgment? We learned that last week. It's to help us to see who God is. It's to help us to understand that God is still there, reaching out to us. Can you imagine that? The God of the universe that could just obliterate nations. And what is he doing with Jerusalem? He's bringing judgment against them to bring correction into the nation. They're going to be 900 miles away, just like Ezekiel is, on the river Kibar, understanding that their judgment is there for a reason. Why does God bring discipline into our lives? Because he wants us to know who he is, to bring us back into a right relationship with him. Verse 8, it sums it up there. And I will make the land desolate because my people have been unfaithful to me. Who was the ones that broke the promise? Who were the ones that were unfaithful? And this is now the segue to chapter 16. When we understand that word unfaithful, when we really understand what it means to be unfaithful to a holy and righteous god who has been faithful to us from the very beginning the closest relationship that we can ever come to here in a in a worldly sense or in a, in a human sense is marriage in fact this is what chapter 16 is going to be all about what what it means to be unfaithful to god what, what does it look like? And, and it's easy to, you know, gloss over. We, we say, well, I, I, you know, told a, a white lie or I, I did an oops or a mistake or it was just something that I, I, I fell back into. I can climb out of it or get out of it later, you know. We, we procrastinate on sin. We explain it away. And God is going to be full on showing us what sin looks like. Uh, the perfect book in the Bible, uh, especially in the minor prophets, is the book of Hosea. Uh, and, and if you've ever read the book of Hosea, especially the first uh, three chapters, it's, it's absolutely beautiful in, in how God loves an unfaithful people. But this unfaithful people have been literally in the dirt, sleeping with everybody in town. And God still reaches out to that unfaithful person. In chapter 16, we get a a history of the nation of Israel and Judah in one chapter through a parable. Look what he says there in verse 16, chapter 1, or verse 1. And then another message came to me from the Lord. Son of man, confront Jerusalem with her detestable sins. Give her this message from the sovereign Lord. You are nothing but a Canaanite. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. On the day you were born, no one cared about you. Your umbilical cord was not cut and you were never washed rubbed with salt and wrapped in cloth. No one had the slightest interest in you. No one pitied you or cared for you. On the day you were born, you were unwanted, dumped in a field and left to die. Oh, what graphic language. This poor baby uh, that was... You know, born between two Gentile people. This is going all the way back to Abraham himself. But understanding that this poor baby has just been left in a field. Umbilical cord still there. Blood still on it. Crying. Uh, really weeping with all of its heart. Wanting to be held by someone. Just left in a field to do what? What? Die? Does God love those babies? Does God reach out to the unlovable? Do you understand that every single one of us can be put into this story? All of us have felt unwanted at least a couple of times in our lives. Do you know who wants you? No, no. Do, do you know who wants you? God wants you. That, 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 that baby that has literally been left with no help at all. No one to come alongside. Of course, if you, you know, have ever been in a you know uh, uh, a birthing ward or or been at a birth to of someone, even if it's at home, even if it's with you know uh, 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 you know some sort of a, a, a nurse or, or a doctor or whatever it is, what's the first thing they do with that baby? They wrap it up, right? They, they they put it next to the mother's breast. There's someone that wants that baby. But what happens when that baby is unwanted? It cries. There's no one to want that baby. At least in a hospital, if there is some baby that's unwanted, at least they're they're at least, you know, washed. They're, they're at least wrapped. They're at least cared for in a warmer or something like that. They're at least nurses. Thank God for the nurse. Thank God for the, the people that volunteer just to hold babies at KMC and various other hospitals throughout our county. Thank God for that. But the picture that we see here of, of Israel itself or themselves is that they were an unwanted Baby, No one wanted them. Except for God. Now the the picture that we're going to see here is is of something that is beautiful. Someone that's beautiful. Beyond compare. When they are next to God, they are beautiful. Look how beautiful they are. Verse 6. I came by and saw you there, helpless, kicking about in your own blood. As you lay there, I said, live. And I helped you to thrive like a plant in the field. You grew up and became a beautiful jewel Your breasts became full and your body hair grew, but you were still naked. And when I passed by again, I saw that you were old enough for love. So I wrapped my cloak around you to cover your nakedness and declared my marriage vows. I made a covenant with you, says the sovereign Lord, and you became mine. Wow. Do you you understand how important this is in terms of salvation itself? All of us have come to a point, anyone that has ever been saved knows that all of us have to come to the point of understanding that there is only one that loves us enough to die for us. Who gives us everlasting life, as it says here, live. That can truly give us life and life abundantly. And that can only come from God. And what does he do when he does that? He makes a vow to us the the deepest kind of vow, a marriage vow. To understand that God, in his sovereignty, chose Israel out of all the nations on the planet and chose them to be his beautiful bride. Uh, Seeing them as a a jewel, a beautiful uh, jewel. Seeing them as someone that is beautiful. That this baby that was once unwanted is now wanted by God. And God is the one that makes the vow. Just like he does with us. Do you know that God sees you as beautiful? When you're in God, you are beautiful. By the way, that's the only way you can be beautiful, truly. When you are in Christ, you are seen as beautiful. The the true definition of uh, beauty. Look how beautiful she is in verse 9. Then I bathed you and washed off your blood, and I rubbed fragrant oils into your skin. I gave you expensive clothing of fine linen and silk, beautiful embroidered, and sandals made of fine goatskin leather. I gave you lovely jewelry, bracelets, beautiful necklace, a a ring for your nose, earrings for your ears, and a lovely crown for your head. A lot of these descriptions are very similar to the the Song of Solomon. The the, the beauty that that King Solomon had given to his uh, bride, describing her literally from head to toe and then from toe to head throughout the scriptures. It's amazing. And God is uh, clothing and giving this beautiful bride these amazing things that adorn her from head to toe. Who's the one that gives her all this stuff? God does. Who's the one that makes her beautiful? God does. Do you see yourself in the story? Do you understand what salvation does to us as well? Who's the one that gives us what we have? The energy, the abilities, the talents. Who's the one that blesses us? It's God. It all comes from God. Because he loves us. Not only that, and and just... Picture this. I mean, the, the, the imagery is absolutely amazing. Verse 13 there, it says, So you were adorned with gold and silver. Your, your clothes were made of fine linen and costly fabric and were beautifully embroidered. You ate the finest foods, choice, flour, honey, and olive oil, and you became more beautiful than ever. You looked like a queen. And so you were. Wow. When, when I see myself in the mirror of who God is, guess what I look like? We're beautiful. We're royalty. Thank God for that. But it only comes from uh, God. God. I want to highlight just one of the things that's mentioned here. I mean, you can look at all these different things from the oils to the silk to the, you know, the different types of food to the, you know, the way that she's adorned with various, you know, um, you know, jewelry and all the things. But but this word embroidery is used twice in this section. Uh, Do you understand what embroidery is? Not something that you take to, you know, some business today and they, you know, put it on a computer and, you know, put it on a hat or a shirt or something like that. Not, not like that. They didn't have those things back then. Do, do you understand the time-staking task of literally hand-embroidering beautiful clothing for, for dresses, for for the clothes uh, that this lady would have worn, the beauty of literally hand stitching every single beautiful part of the cloth, and then making it into some sort of a dress—a uh, queenly material, definitely. Uh, material that was. Really, really expensive to be able to produce. Every stitch having to be done by hand. Verse 14. Your fame soon spread throughout the world because of your beauty. I dressed you in my splendor and perfected your beauty, says the sovereign Lord. When we are in God, we are beautiful. And who is the one that makes us look that way? It only comes from God. Now, you may not, I mean, I don't know what you're thinking right now. I I don't know what your self-image is like. I I don't know if you, you think that you know, you have too many mistakes or sins or, or whatever it is piled on your life that you can no longer overcome. What I can guarantee from the scriptures is God the one that makes us beautiful. Yes. Is, is God the one that when we are attached to him that gives us a life of beauty? That he sees us as worthwhile when everybody else doesn't. God does. The, the beauty of the church is that we can remind one another of that. that that's why fellowship is so important. That, that's why whether it's you know Wednesday nights or Monday nights or Sundays or Friday nights, whenever it is, that we can come together in fellowship. That we can encourage one another, build one another up. Help us to see that when we are in Christ, that we are truly uh, beautiful. The problem is when we walk away, as Israel will, in the next section, all our beauty comes from God. Every single ounce of it. It's not something that we do ourselves. To make us better. That's why salvation is so important. It is nothing that we do in and of ourselves, it's only from God grace and mercy. Israel was chosen out of all the nations of the world. That little baby that was squirming in its own blood, God chose and made her beautiful. She had nothing inherently good in herself. God made her beautiful, just like he does with each and every single one of us. Unfortunately, the fame and the beauty got to her head, as it does with us. Verse 15, but you thought your fame and beauty were your own. So you gave yourself as a prostitute to every man who came along. Your beauty was theirs for the asking. What happens when we leave the Lord? And what's the comparison here? This isn't just some you know, trip up. This isn't just some mistake. This isn't just some oops. This isn't just some my bad. This is something that she chose to do. Where, where literally she left her first love... She, she left the one that gave her everything that made her beautiful. And she uses that beauty to seduce others. She breaks the covenant vow. Now the comparison here, and you know, not only this chapter, but also chapter 23, the book of Hosea, throughout the book of Jeremiah, we see that sin is always compared uh, to prostitution. Unfaithfulness with God is always compared to being a harlot, to adultery, uh, to, to going against the will of God, saying, I don't want you anymore, I choose to do things my own way. We never like to use those kind of language, though. The Bible does, thank God, because we all need to be reminded of it. To understand that I am in a a, a vow with God, I, I, I should love God with all my heart. He loves me, why would I ever walk away? But when we do, what is it compared to? Prostitution. Look at what she does in verse 16. You use the lovely things that I gave you to make shrines for idols, where you played the prostitute. Unbelievable. How could such a thing ever happen? You took the very jewels and the gold. And the silver ornaments I had given you and made statues of men and worshipped them. This is adultery against me. Whenever I put anything before God, what am I doing? I'm committing adultery. Wow. Do we ever think of sin like that? Do we? Do we ever think uh, of leaving God like that? That I mean, as being that horrific, as if you were slapping your spouse and saying, "I don't want to be here anymore," using all those things that that God had given her to now make idols, and even as we're going to find out, to pay the people that are sleeping with her. Wow. Horrific. But do you know that that's exactly what we do whenever we sin and leave God? All the things that God has given to us, the, the gifts, the abilities, the, the possessions that we have, and I use those things for sin, what am I saying to God? God. I would rather be with this other thing than with the true living God of the entire universe. Look! Look how horrific it is, by the way, in verse eighteen. This is why I'm pointed out this word "embroidered," because the, these embroidered dresses took literally hours and hours and hours to make, days even. And what does she do with them? You use the beautiful embroidered clothes I gave you to dress your idols. Then you use my special oil and my incense to worship them. Imagine it. You set before them as a sacrifice the choice flower, the olive oil, and the honey I had given you, says the sovereign Lord. And again, these are inanimate objects, these are idols. These are things that Israel had chosen before a living God who chose her and loved her. It's anything that we put before God, all these things God had given to them, all these beautiful things God had given to them. What did they use them for? The horrific idols that they had made. It gets worse, by the way, in verse 20. Then you took your sons and daughters, the children you had born to me, and sacrificed them to your gods. Was your prostitution not enough? Must you also slaughter my children by sacrificing them to idols? She wasn't even willing to think of her own children like God thought of her. How did God find Israel? How did God find her? Like a baby squirming in her own blood. And what did she do with her children? Did you have the same compassion for them? No. I, I I don't know what your upbringing was like, whether you had good parents or bad parents, or you know if you were adopted or whatever it was. I don't know. But but every single person understands, especially as you you grow up, that there there's a time in our lives where we have to understand that. That we have to make choices for ourselves. We can't blame, you know, our parents. We can't blame whoever raised us. It's easy to sometimes. People do it all the time. But we, but we have to come to a, a point in our own lives where we have to make choices. That, that we are going to be held accountable to. That we can't blame other people for and Israel what are they doing they're they're literally sacrificing their own children to these inanimate objects this is we see this throughout the, the scriptures first and second samuel first and second kings first and second chronicles we see uh, even you know uh, earlier in the book of, of judges as well we see that the people would literally uh, sacrifice their children to Molech, uh, the, this god that would demand the uh, the sacrifice of babies, and, and this was done in a, one of the most horrific ways. You see, this this idol had hands that would be re- reached out like this, and they they would put fire inside of the belly of this this statue, this idol, and it would heat up the idol to, you know, red hot, and then they would lay their baby on the arms. Can you imagine the sizzling flesh? It's horrific. 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 This once abandoned baby is now sacrificing her own baby. by the way, to inanimate objects too. Do you understand the comparison? We may not literally sacrifice our children, but do we neglect our children to inanimate objects? All the time. All the time. Verse 22. And by the way, I... You know, we're reading from the NLT, and and it it, it does make it a little bit easier to understand. But I I really appreciate how it describes sin, whenever it does describe sin. It describes it as detestable. It, it, It literally uses this adjective before the noun, sin, that describes it to its basis level. Sin is detestable. Verse 22, in all your years of adultery and detestable sin, you have not once remembered the days long ago when you lay naked in a field kicking about in your own blood. And isn't that true for most of us, right? All of us. We we forget those things that God has blessed us with We complain we choose to abuse those things because maybe something bad happened to us or you know something happened at the church or whatever we we go off and do you know whatever we want to do and we blame god god is never to be blamed he's always the one that reaches out to us if we just remember if we just count our blessings, if we just remember what he did for us from the very beginning when we were squirming in our own blood, rejects, and God reached out to us. Verse 23. What sorrow awaits you, says the sovereign Lord, in addition to all your other wickedness, you you built a pagan shrine and you put altars in uh, or two idols in every town square on every street corner you defiled your beauty offering your body to every passer in an endless stream of prostitution. Then you added lustful Egypt to your lovers, provoking my anger with your increasing promiscuity. That is why I struck you with my fist, reduced your boundaries. I handed you over to your enemies, the Philistines, and even they were shocked by your lewd conduct. They out the surrounding nations. Wow. Wow. You you have prostituted yourself with the Assyrians too. It seems you could never find enough new lovers. And after your prostitution there, you still were not satisfied. You added to your lovers by embracing Babylonia, the land of merchants. But you still weren't uh, satisfied. What does sin always do? It leaves you un satisfied. You always need more and more and more and more. That's the the object of every single addiction. You always need more of it. It's never enough to fill the void. You always need that next whatever, the next hit or the next uh, bottle or the next thing. You always need the next. Why? Because it never satisfies. There's only one, by the way, that can satisfy. The world never satisfies. It always leaves you wanting more. By the way, what is Israel doing? And and the the comparison here, of course, being a a, a nation, they're going after other nations. God had chosen them to be set apart. God had been chosen them to be a light on a hill. God had chosen them to be a blessing to the nations. And what are they doing instead? Prostituting themselves out to the nations, trying to get allies, trying to get their favor. This unending stream of um, prostitution. By the way, why why does the word word of God use this word, prostitution? Why why, why does it use this a uh, term that makes us, especially you know, civilized people or you know, um, congenial people, you know we we, we we hate this word. We don't like to use this word. It makes us uncomfortable <clears throat> because we can see ourselves in it. We're shown a mirror with our own sins before our own eyes, because all of us know that we've been unfaithful to the one that's been faithful to us forever. And ever and ever, thank God for that. Chapter 16, verse 30, it says, What a sick heart you have, says the Sovereign Lord, to do such things as these, acting like a shameless prostitute. You you build your pagan shrines on every street corner and your altars to idols in every square. In fact, you have been worse than a prostitute. How can you get worse? The Bible describes it. So eager for sin that you have not even demanded payment. By definition, what does a prostitute do? They charge for their body. That, that's how they make their living. What is Israel doing? She's going to pay them. Look how horrific this is. You build your pagan shrines on every street corner, your altars to idols on every square. In fact, you have been worse than a prostitute, so eager for sin that you have not even demanded payment. Yes, you are an adulterous wife who takes in strangers instead of her own husband. Prostitutes charge for their services, but not you. You give gifts to your lovers, bribing them to come have sex with you. So you are the Opposite of other prostitutes, you pay your lovers instead of their paying you. How illogical is sin? Do you understand when you sin, you, you pay someone else, you spend hard. Cash, hard money, hard talents that you have worked hard uh, for, that God has blessed you with, and you use those things to destroy your body. You pay for it. You pay to be unfaithful to God. This is what God is describing in this chapter. It's hard to read. I'm sure it's hard to hear. Verse 35, therefore you prostitute, listen to this message from the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Because you have poured out your lust and exposed yourself in prostitution to all your lovers. Because you have worshipped detestable idols. And because you have slaughtered your children as sacrifices to your gods, This is what I'm going to do. I will gather together all your allies, the lovers with whom you have sinned, both those you loved and those you hated, and I will strip you naked in front of them so they can stare at you. I will punish you for your murder and adultery. I will cover you with blood in my jealous fury, and I will give you to these many nations who are your lovers, and they will destroy you. They will knock down your pagan shrines and the altars of, to your idols. They will strip you and take your beautiful jewels, leaving you stark naked. They will band together in a mob to stone you and cut you up with swords. They will burn your homes and punish you in front of many women. I will stop your prostitution and end your payment to your lovers. Do you understand what is happening to Israel? God is going to make them look like when he found them naked in their blood. He's going to show them what it is like when sin comes to its final culmination where you are used and abused and everyone hates you. And then who's going to come along and show you that he loves you? It sends goosebumps up my spine. Because just like God found that, that little baby naked and alone, now this woman is, is older, naked and bloodied, abused by everyone that she paid to have sex with her. And God's going to show his love to her again. No longer as a, a cute little baby, but now as a used up whore. A used up prostitute. Not, not as a, a baby that was left there, not of its own will, but by someone who, who abandoned her. Uh, now she is a woman who has made choices. Uh, to to abuse her own body and God comes and loves her. Just like she is, naked and bloodied. Do, do you understand the deep, 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 deep love of God? For you and for me. When, when we choose to be unfaithful... God is still faithful. Wow. Does he still keep his promises to us even though we don't keep our promises to him? Thank God. Do you understand how blessed we are to have a God who loves us so deeply, who is so faithful to us? Verse 42, then at last my fury against you will be spent. My jealous anger will subside. I will be calm and will not be angry with you anymore. But first, because you have not remembered your youth, but have angered me by doing these evil things, I will repay or fully repay you for all your sins, says the sovereign Lord. For you added a lewd acts to all your detestable sins. Everyone who makes up Proverbs will say, like mother, like daughter. For your mother loathed her husband and her children, and so do you. You are exactly like your sisters for the despised their husbands and their children. Truly your mother was a Hittite, your father an Amorite, taking them back to their origins, showing them. Who they were as this abandoned baby who was abandoned by her own mother, by her own parents, who abandoned her children. This abandoned, abused, leftover baby that has now made these horrific choices in her life. Who's going to be there at the very end? Who's going to come to her again? God. Your older sister Samaria, this is going to be the nation of Israel. And at this time, the nation of Israel has been split. There's the nation of Judah in the south, there's the nation of, of Israel in the north. Israel has already been taken away into captivity by the Assyrians. Their capital was Samaria. When they come back, they're going to be called Samaritans. This is super important, by the way, this section in the scripture, because when Jesus goes to the woman at the well, she is a Samaritan. A woman that has slept around town too, by the way, who has already had six husbands, is on her seventh, whom she's you know living with, not married to. And Jesus sits down and talks to her, by the way and loves her and says, I, I want to give you something. I, I want to give you abundant life. I want to give you a water that will never end. I, I want to give you life that is fulfilling. And by the way, she runs into town and tells everybody else too, which is amazing. She's so, so excited. Someone knows me. She says, someone understands me. Someone's willing to talk to me. This is Jesus Christ, God incarnate, talking to a Samaritan woman, knowing the fulfillment of this section, verse 46. Your older sister was Samaria, who lived with her daughters in the north. Your younger sister was Sodom, who lived with her daughters in the south. But you have not merely sinned as they did. You quickly surpassed them in corruption. How can you out-sin Sodom? You guys know what happened to Sodom. Right? Fire from heaven. Jerusalem outsends Sodom. And surely as I live, says the Sovereign Lord, Sodom and her daughters were never as wicked as you and your daughters. Sodom's sin was pride, gluttony, and laziness. While while the poor and the needy suffered outside her door, she was proud and committed detestable sin. So I, I wiped her out, as you have seen. Even Samaria, who, by the way, was... was Uh, conquered in 722 uh, BC approximately 150 years before Jerusalem was. Even Samaria did not commit half your sins. You have done far more detestable things than your sisters ever did. They seem righteous compared to you. Wow. Do you understand what he's saying? That Sodom looks more righteous than you. Sodom looks righteous compared to what you're doing. Wow. Do you see the comparison? Shame on you. Your sins are so terrible that you make your sister seem righteous, even virtuous. But someday I will restore the fortunes of Sodom and Samaria and I will restore you too. Then you will truly, or be truly ashamed for everything you have done. For your sins, make them feel good in comparison. Do you understand what God is going to do? He's going to come to them with mercy and grace and love. Even Samaria and Sodom, by the way, Who who lived in Sodom? You guys remember? It was Abraham's nephew Lot, right? That that, that land that they were choosing, Abraham giving Lot the first choice and him choosing Sodom, that was his. That that was his birthright. Still a nephew of Abraham. Will God still bless them? Will will God still be with them? As well as the Samaritan too. These half-breeds that were, you know, when they came back from the Assyrian being scattered throughout the world. Coming back as half-breeds, half-Jewish or part-Jewish and and some other nation. Being rejected by the, you know, the quote-unquote real Jews. Does God still reach out to them? Yes, he does. Verse 55, yes, your sisters, Sodom and Samaria, and all their people will be restored. And at that time, you also will be restored in your proud days. You held Sodom in contempt, but now your greatest wickedness has been exposed to all the world. And you are the one who is scorned by Edom and all her neighbors and by Philistia. By the way, why is God restoring Samaria, Sodom, and Jerusalem? Do you you understand what it's like to to think of yourself as righteous when you're actually not? Looking down your nose at everyone else. This is what Jerusalem has been doing. You know, the the religious attitude, the religious, you know, uh, person in their life. Thinking that they are better than other people. And in actuality they're committing worse sins. It all comes down to pride. The very first sin, by the way. Verse 59 through 63 will end it here. I I'm so grateful that you're here tonight. I know this has been hard for those of you that watched the whole thing. But there's always a a message at the end that, that just always brings back hope. This this baby that was once squirming in her blood. This woman that has chosen to go against the wedding vows. Purposely choosing to be unfaithful. What does God do? Verse 59. Now this is what the Sovereign Lord says. I will give you what you deserve for you have taken your solemn vows lightly by breaking your covenant. Yet I will remember the covenant I made with you when you were young and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Who still remembers? Who still is faithful? Wow. Is is there always hope in the Bible? Is there always a a message of being able to change someone that may seem unchangeable or unworthy or without hope and God coming along and creating something miraculous? Wow. Who remembers the promise? Who remembers the covenant? It's always God. Verse 61, then you will remember with shame all the evil you have done. I will make your sisters, Samaria and Sodom, be your daughters, even though they are not part of the covenant. God's going to allow other nations to come in, us Gentiles. Isn't that amazing? And I will reaffirm my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. Have you ever been to a you know, um, um, uh, renewal of wedding vows before? Maybe some, you know, a couple that has been through literally the ringer uh, has been unfaithful to each other or, or, you know, separated or something like that. And miraculously, they somehow come together, uh, you know, the tears and the crying, all those kind of things, the emotional nature of renewing of vows. This isn't some, you know, uh, 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 a virgin guy and a virgin man or a woman uh, coming together in, in newlyweds. And no, these are people that have literally come apart at the seams, literally making themselves prostitutes. And God coming along and saying, I love you. Renewing of the vows. Thank God for that. And I will renew, reaffirm my covenant with you, and you will know that I am the Lord. You will remember your sins and cover your mouth in silent shame. When I forgive you of all that you have done, I, the sovereign Lord, have spoken, sealing the vow with his very name. Who he is. His very being is faithfulness. If God is not faithful, he is not God. By definition, he is faithful. He has to be faithful. He has always been faithful to unfaithful people so tonight as we you know uh, go our separate ways I, I, I hope that you don't forget this when you leave I, I pray that this becomes really a, a part of your life Re- read this chapter again I, by the way read you know the first three chapters of Hosea they go perfectly with this the faithfulness of God is so amazing and he's faithful to you too by the way He's faithful to you. It's amazing that God redeems through kindness, grace, and mercy to people that seem unredeemable, unworthy, squirming in your blood. And yet God still loves you. Isn't that amazing? I hope it floors you tonight. Dear Father, I, I thank you so much for your word. That, that truly is hard to read. But there's always hope and thank God for that. Thank God that your word is always uh, uh, spoken without void. It always returns with new life. Uh, maybe tonight as we've been listening or, or hearing... We've been pricked ourselves, convicted ourselves. I don't know what it is, only you and the person that you're talking to. I don't know what you're um, stirring in each of the hearts in this room or those that are listening, but I ask that, that we really examine our hearts tonight as we had the privilege of doing just silently in worship, that we would... Take time tonight and before we, have, we do anything else. That we just really take time tonight to, to literally contemplate your faithfulness. And that every time we, we sin, we're, we're saying that I don't want to be with you. I don't want to be faithful to you. I, I want to do something that I want to do rather than being with God. That, that sin truly is detestable. So Lord, tonight I ask that you help us to understand that more and more and deeper. And then to be grateful that we have a God who is faithful to us in the depths of our sin. Our, our, our chosen sin, that you are still faithful to us. That you you allow those disciplines in our lives on purpose so that you draw us back to you because of your unfailing love for us. And that we would hopefully, maybe even for the first time tonight, come to a realization that our God loves us so much, is faithful to us in the depths of our sin, and he's still chosen us. Thank God for that. And so Lord, I ask you bless these, my friends, my family tonight. Bless those that are watching or those may, may watch in the future. Lord, I ask that you help us, help us to see you. And then thank God to see us as beautiful in you, the way you make us beautiful in your holiness, in your righteousness. And Lord, I thank you so much that you're patient with us, as these people have been patient with me tonight. Lord, I ask that you help us to focus upon you, to desire you with all of our hearts, to have that relationship with you that is deep and abiding, that is deeper than any other human relationship, that we can come before you and know that we have a God that loves us dearly. Lord, thank you, thank you, thank you for that. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen and amen.